Okay, Boker Tov, we're at the bottom of the Gemara Moy Cotton, Yud Beis Ahmed Aleph. We're discussing if you have wine or other items that would spoil. So what can you do on Chola Moed? We had a Machlokes. Rav Yossi said you could do whatever you need to do to fix it up, even to seal the barrels. Or Behuda said, you only do enough that it shouldn't spoil, but not the full um, activity necessary. And the Gemara said, you know, that we do hold like Rabiosi on this matter. And therefore, the Gemara just adds one more case dealing with this. They asked the Shaila of Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. What's the law regarding whether to seal a barrel of beer on Chol HaMoed? We discussed in the Mishnah wine. Wine and oil. Right, right. But we didn't discuss beer. Beer. So what's the law regarding beer? So he answered... Sinai Omar Halacha Karabiosi. This is Rav Yosef already said. Now he's called Sinai. Why is he called Sinai? We'll see in a minute. He already said the halacha is like Rav Yosef. So what's the question? Obviously, you can seal the barrel as well. Okay. Now, Rav Yosef was called this name Sinai because of his great broad <laughs> knowledge of Mishnayis and Brysus. They were clear to him. His memory and his understanding was so clear as the day they were given at Sinai. There was a there was a discussion in a previous Gemara. More discussed what was more important, Sinai or Oker Harim, the one who can uproot mountains. I don't remember the name of the other rabbi, but Rabbi Yossi is referred to as Sinai because he had a breadth of knowledge of sources, clear as day, like at Sinai. Another rabbi was Oker Harim. He had a sharp mind. He could uproot mountains, so to speak. Now he had a great Talmudic mind. So they say, which one is more important? And they say, Sinai is more important. Because if you don't have bread, there's nothing to eat. In other words, if you don't have the knowledge of the material, what's going to happen? What's going to help to have a sharp mind? Anyway, so this is the name they give Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef already said uh, last week, just a few lines before, the Allah is like Rabbi Yosef. So what's to discuss? Of course you could take care of the beer as necessary. So like, what was the Shaila that you even had to ask? Skamora said... I'll tell you what the Shiloh was. Amor, maybe, when Rabbi Yosef, when Rabbi Yosef said the Lachas like Rabbi Yosef, because Rabbi Yosef only mentioned his halacha regarding wine. And to that, Rabbi Yosef said the law is like Rabbi Yosef. But maybe, Beshikra Miyamar, maybe he didn't say it regarding beer. What a thought. Maybe he didn't say it by beer. We weren't sure. So he says, no, 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 there's no difference. Why? Chamra, so now we understand. Chamra, in the case of wine, okay, 
Why does Rabbi Yossi permit him to seal the wine? Mishum Danafish Pseida. Because there's a potential loss. There's a lot. Guess what? Shikranami Aspa Pseida. Beer too has a great potential loss of money. How do we know? The Amr Abai, because Abaye says, Amrali Aim. My mother told me. Now, it's not really his mother. Abaye's mother died when she gave birth to Abaye. So, therefore, there was a nursemaid who raised Abaye. So, when Abaye ever says mother, he's referring to the nursemaid. So, what did the nursemaid tell him? It says, Bar Shis Soveveshoyai. Better to have a six saw. That's a measurement barrel of beer that's sealed, mi bartam as opposed to an eight saw barrel, which is bigger, three twenty five percent bigger. That's unsealed. So we see it's worthwhile to even lose two saw of beer for the benefit of a sealed barrel. So if you don't seal the barrel, you clearly are having a significant loss of money. So therefore it follows that just as Rabbi allows you to seal a barrel of wine on Cholomoyed, so he allows you to seal a barrel of beer on Cholomoyed. What did his mother, nurse mother tell him that for? What's the relation? Well, to tell you she always sealed the beer. She's telling him it had nothing to do with nursing. Well, you know, first of all, a nursemaid needs to, it's good to drink beer, to be a to nurse uh, children, okay. that's uh, a very uh, uh-huh. that's wholesome right. drink, that's so right. to speak. So I guess she told him that halacha. Okay, so full stop at this point. Now the Gemara is going to mention in general, a couple general statements regarding the laws of Cholamoid, which is a good rule of thumb to remember as we're going through the laws of Cholamoid. A statement was said in the name of Rav. Hilchas Moed, the laws of Chol HaMoed, what you can and cannot do on Chol HaMoed, is like the laws of the Kusim, when you have to decide Halacha. There seems to be two very, nothing to do with each other concepts, and he has tied the two together. Let's explain again Hilchas Kusim. Who are these Kusim? Remember when the first temple was destroyed and the Jews were sent out of Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel was not populated. So the Assyrian emperor wanted to populate it. So he bought non-Jews from an area called Kusa to populate it. However, these were idol worshippers and Hashem was very upset that the land was now being filled with idol worshippers. So Hashem sent lions to terrorize the Kusim who were there. When the king <coughs> wanted to know what's going on, all of a sudden there's lions attacking peoples in civilization. It's unusual. So he asked one of the Nevi'im what's going on, and he said, God does not want to have <coughs> idol worshippers in the land of Eretz Yisrael. So the king said, okay, so you convert them and teach them all about Torah. So they did, and the lions stopped attacking. Okay, so, um, so, but they weren't exactly so great. 
even though they, so to speak, converted them to Judaism, but many say that the motivation was purely ulterior motive that they should not get attacked by the lions. And even after they converted, they continued to serve their idols. And the Kusites did not um, uh, uh, follow the authority of the rabbis the way they expounded in the Torah. So they wouldn't follow laws that were not explicitly stated in the Torah. So what happened? So they kept some laws. They didn't keep some laws. And in the times of the Gemara, there was a big question as to how to deal with their halachic Jewish status. So it's not only now where we have questions of who is a Jew. We had this question thousands of years ago. But there is a rule that the rabbis saw by the behavior of the kusin. And they said the following. If a kusi does keep a halacha, he's very meticulous in following it, just like a regular Jew. Okay? However, those that they didn't observe, you could not trust them. Okay? So the Gemara Kulan states that their observance followed no rule. In other words, they, it wasn't like, well, let's say the hardest mitzvahs they kept or didn't keep the easiest ones they did, maybe you could find some methodology. For example, with the reform and conservative, you can co- kind of follow a rule. Rule is very simple. Anything that has to do with um, uh, ritual, they don't do. Anything that is like kind of moral, they'll sort of do. That's general rule. Like they're not gonna put on tefillin, they're not gonna put on a kippah, and stuff like that, but they may give tzedakah. Tikkun olam. Okay, in how they do it. So, somebody's cell phone's going off. Anyway, so there is some, you can follow some pattern when you're dealing with reforming conservative Jews. But the kusim, it's like whatever, whatever mood they were in, they said, oh, this law makes sense to us. And it could be a very hard law, but they keep it really careful. They never converted. No, they did. They, they did, did convert. convert. Yeah. Yes. Whoa. Yes, but then they still worship idols. And once you convert, you convert. So again, there was always this question, do we treat them as full-fledged Jews or not? They converted. They did convert a hundred percent. They agreed, but then afterwards you back out. So when you back out afterwards, you're still a Jew. So now the question always was, well, was the conversion really a hundred percent a proper one or not? That was the debate. It was a big debate till it was finally resolved that they saw they completely didn't keep anything. Uh, anyway, so therefore the Gemara Kulin says that their observance followed no rule. So one could not assume that because they observed a given commandment, they observed another one. You could say, oh, look, I see, he keeps this real hard mitzvah. Must keep an easier mitzvah. No, no, we see they don't keep that mitzvah. So there's no hard and fast rule. So therefore, wherever we know they did it, then we know they do it well. Wherever we don't know they do it, then we don't know that they do it well. So that's, so in other words, the way we rule on a kusi is there's no rules. We just got to see. 
So this, the Kusi keeps this one, fine. Does it mean they're going to keep another one? No. No. Let's say another example. If you, uh, the general rule nowadays, general rule. How do you know if you get eat in somebody's house? How do you know they keep kosher? The general rule is if they keep Shabbos, they generally keep kosher. You can assume they keep all the laws. If they're Shomer Shabbos, they're going to keep kosher. Fine. But uh, why? Because Shabbos are hard mitzvah to keep. And, it, and if they're going to keep Shabbos, they'll probably keep kosher too. If they say they have a kosher home, you can assume. You know, they, they don't drive on Shabbos. They don't do a lot. Of, it's, Shabbos is a very difficult mitzvah. So we'd assume that keeping kosher is not as hard as keeping Shabbos. With the kusim, if you'd see them keeping Shabbos, doesn't mean they're keeping kosher. So that's the thing that they say. Therefore, the Gemara now, again, back to Rav. The laws of Chol HaMoed are similar to the laws of kusim. In what way? Just because I know a certain law of Chol HaMoed doesn't mean I can extract another law about Chol HaMoed based on that. In other words, we can't come, just like by the kusim, if they do mitzvah A, doesn't mean they do mitzvah B. Same thing on Cholamoid. Just because you're allowed to do this thing on Cholamoid, whatever it may be, we can't extract from that that, oh, then of course you can do that on Cholamoid. No, because the laws of Cholamoid have very many variables. We've already discussed you have needs, public needs, um, financial loss, a lot of effort. So therefore, it's you can't extract. So in that way, they're similar to the laws of the kusim. Just because you know one law, somebody's very persistent in trying to call somebody. Must be somebody's wife, because usually they're very persistent in those things. That you can't extrapolate a law about women. Certain things you can extrapolate. Certain things you can't extrapolate. But uh, they figure the more they call, the more they nudge, the husband will pick up. That's why I don't have a cell phone. I never got to worry about it. Okay, anyway. So the Gemara now says, well, So in what legal consequence is implied by that statement? Okay, that's a very nice statement. But what's the bottom line to compare the two types of situations? Omer of Daniel Bar Katina. So Rav Daniel Barakatina says, and some say, Omar Rav, in the name of Rav, Lomar Shehein Akuros. This comes to say the laws of Cholamoid as using a metaphor are like barren woman. Now a barren woman, what benefits come from a barren woman? She's married to the husband, but she can't have children. In other words, usually a woman who's not barren, she's a wife, and if she's a wife, she'll also have children. There's offspring. So the laws of Cholamoid is like, if you have the law, all you have is the law. But no offspring come from the law. You can't say, well, if this is the law, then we can deduce that. No. They cannot be derived one from the other. If let's say the rabbis gave a certain leniency for one type of work on Cholamoid, you can't assume, oh, well, if they were lenient with this, they're lenient with that. So then that way they resemble the laws of the Kusim 
For Kusim too, we can't extrapolate one law for another. And the reason why Cholomite can't derive is because the reasoning can follow all kinds of unexpected guidelines which you may not have understood. Here's an example. Right from the beginning of the Mesechta. We said you can water an irrigated field, if you recall, because of the loss you'll suffer if it doesn't continue to get watered. Okay, not everybody's such a great scholar. They just know what you can do on Cholomite. So one might assume that since it requires no greater exertion to water a rain-watered field, same amount of exertion, I guess that's permittable. But this person may not realize that the loss will, that will be suffered in each case is very different. And that's the basis of how the law is decided. So therefore, you can't deduce one law from another. You've got to be a little more scholarly. Now, if you're very scholarly, yeah, then you can deduce. But we're talking about rendering laws to people. And people don't know all the scholarship reasoning behind it. So just because you heard one law from a rabbi, don't deduce another law from that. Because you might not know the reasons behind that. And now we see examples of that. The Omar Shmuel, for Shmuel says, for example... Zosin kusta, you can coat the inside of a jug with pitch and cholamoid. Vein zosin chavisa, but you cannot coat the inside of a barrel with pitch and cholamoid. Now they're both things that contain wine or stuff. It's both on the inside, and they're both clay containers, and they're coated to prevent liquid from oozing out. Yet one you can do, one you can't do. Ravdimi mi Nahardoi, Omar, but Ravdimi of Nahardoi says, Zosin chavitin vein zosin kusa. He says we can coat a barrel on cholamoy, but we can't coat a jug on cholamoy. And the reason between this machlokes is as follows. Mar chayish the one Ravdimi is concerned more about preventing a financial loss on Cholamoid and therefore permits the coating of the larger barrel because there's more financial loss in something going uh, leaking out. Okay? In determining the permissibility of given act of Cholamoid, we must weigh exertion versus loss. Right? What takes more exertion, to coat a jug or a barrel? A barrel. A barrel. Where's there more financial loss? A jug or a barrel? Barrel. Therefore, although the exertion involved in coating a large barrel is greater than that involved in coating a small jug, Rav Dimi allows it to be done, for a barrel holds more wine than a jug. More potential loss. And therefore, that's why he allows that. Umar, but the other rabbi, Chayish Latircha, is worried about the effort you have to make. So that's a good example of why we can't rely on determining one law versus another. So what do they decide? Uh, that's a machlokas, okay? Uh, although there's greater potential for loss of the barrel, he does not permit it to be called because of the exertion, okay? And therefore, people might not assume the correct deductions to be made. So that's just an example of how you, you, know, you have to know what's the base of Allah. You're going to say, well, what's the difference? A person might think, 
Whatever it is, barrels and jugs are different. You'd say, what's the difference? What's the difference? Or you'd say, well, this is harder work. Well, maybe we're going to look more by effort versus loss. Or do you work at loss versus effort? So therefore, you can see a good example. The rabbis who had opinions and logic, at least they have a logic to what they're doing. While regular uh, non-scholars won't understand the logic and will incorrectly deduce what to do. So what would they follow? What would the rabbis say? Well, you have to be consistent, so in other words. Rabbi, that's right. Yeah. So you can't, right. Good. Amar Abaye. Comes along Abaye. Another rule regarding Cholomoy. So the first rule we say, the laws of Cholomoy are like the laws of Kusin. You can't deduce one from another. Next general rule we have over here, Abai says, Naktinan, we hold as a tradition, Hilchas Moed Kehilchas Shabbos. The laws of forbidden activities on Cholamoid are like the laws of the forbidden Malacha on Shabbos. In what way? Obviously, they're not completely the same because you could do a lot more on Cholamoid than on Shabbos. So, in which way are they? like the laws of Shabbos, as follows. They both share the common denominator. Yesh mehem potler avalosser. There's activities on Cholamoyed, similar to Shabbos, that you're really not allowed to do it, but if you do it, you still are exempt from any punishment, as we shall see. Some laws are, okay, rabbinically you shouldn't do it, Okay, but if you do it, you did it. And whereas, let's say, for example, um, the rabbis say you shouldn't, uh, oh, you shouldn't read next to a candle on Shabbos. Okay, why? You might tilt it. Okay, so you're allowed to do it? No. What if you did it and you didn't tilt? It's okay. Do you have to bring a court machatis? No. No. Mm-hmm. So that's a question of putter avolaser. If you did it. You're exempt from punishment, but you weren't supposed to do it. So Shabbos has those types of laws, and Cholamoid has those types of laws. The Yeshmehen, and there are certain laws that are Mutter Lechat that are initially allowed to be done. Okay, so let's see how the commentary elaborates on this. Shabbos activities fall into three categories. One, Activities that are biblically forbidden on Shabbos, one of the 39 primary malachas. And it's punishable by stoning if you did it on purpose, and a korban chatas by uh, inadvertently. That's one. Now, that you're not going to have on Cholomoyed. You're not going to have on that. There are no activities that are high of uh, skila. There's no activity. No matter what you do on Cholomoyed, you're not going to get stoned. And you're not going to bring a korban chattis because there's no absolute categories of activity you may not do on cholamoid. But now we have the common denominators. Acts forbidden by rabbinic decree may not be done in the first place, but if they're done, they're not punishable by stoning and you don't bring a korban chattis. Although you may get rabbinic lashes, but that's a side point. In some circumstances, acts that would seem to be prohibited, though, are entirely permissible. You might have thought it's not allowed, but it's completely allowed. So the laws of Cholomite are like the laws of Shabbos with respect to the final two categories 
which all cholamoid activities fall into. So if you do work on cholamoid, it may be prohibited in the first place to do it, but you still don't get a punishment by biblical law. And there are many acts that may have looked prohibited, but in fact are per- perfectly permissible. Let's say financial loss or things like that. Hence, when we rule that one may not coat the inside of a vessel on Cholamoid, we mean only that's forbidden to do so in the first place. But when you do, you don't get a penalty. And although there's reason to assume that coating a vessel on Cholamoid is always prohibited, there might be reasons to think that in certain cases it's entirely permissible. Okay? Now, why is there no biblical penalty for doing work on Cholamoid? Because we derive the whole thing from the positive commandment, Eschag Hamatzos Tishmor Shivas Yomim. You will guard the holiday of the matzos. Okay? And in generally, there's no, it's a positive commandment. It doesn't say a negative tishmor. Okay, so there's no penalty for transgressing a positive commandment. Although one who performs work on Cholamoid is indeed liable to no biblical penalty, is sometimes liable to rabbinic penalty, as in the case of one who schedules his work on Cholamoid. For example, the rabbis could say you can't enjoy the financial benefit under certain circumstances. An alternative explanation of the Cholamoid Shabbos correlation maintains that Abai is not at all concerned with one's liability for transgressing the Cholamite prohibitions. Rather, the parallel he draws concerns the level of permissibility and impermissibility on Shabbos and Cholamite activity. Just as on the Shabbos there are some acts that are entirely permissible and others that should not be performed, so to on Cholamite there are some acts that are performed unconditionally while others have certain stipulations. Okay, so again we see that there's some similarities between Chol HaMoed and Shabbos. So interesting, in one way it's like the laws of Kusim, that you can't extrapolate one law from another. Another way they're like Shabbos, where sometimes it's totally permitted, and sometimes you shouldn't do it, but if you did it, you kind of, so to speak, get away with it, so to speak, in terms of punishment. Okay, now we have these rules. So now we're going to have a story that bears on Rabiosi's ruling back to our Mishnah of you don't have to do things with a Shinui. If there's a financial loss, you can do what has to be done. So Rav Huna So it occurred that the workers of Rav Huna, they reaped Rav Huna's harvest during Chol HaMoed. Rashi says they were non-Jews. Now, what, what's going on on Cholamoid? Vusepis, it's Rav Huna over here. Why are they reaping his fields on Cholamoid? So the answer is, Rav Huna could not have harvested the grain before the festival because it first became ripe on the festival. Wasn't ready to be harvested. It was a, it was a late bloomers, whatever. All right, so let's postpone it till after Cholamoid. Well, they were good agriculturists and they knew if he postpones it until afterwards the grain would have passed its peak and become worthless. In other words, it was only at a short window of harvest which came up on Cholamoid. So now it's, it's bound to lose a big financial loss. 
So he had his Goyish workers harvest the field. Fine. So now the people saw he did that. So Esav Raba by Ravuna the Ravuna. So Raba, the son of Huna, challenged his father's ruling from the following price. So that says, if you need to grind flour, how much flour can you grind on Cholamoyed? Well, basically, how much you need. You ground grain into flour for how much you need only for Cholamoyed. But, but if you don't need that much for Cholamoyed, you can't do. So, therefore, it's you're allowed to ground grain but there's rules regarding that, right? Only for what you need for that yontif, okay? He could even do a lot, so he'll have a little bit of leftover. That's not, doesn't lead to the percent, mamish, that there's not one drop of grain left over. You can do liberally, okay? Uh, and some you have to do in private, etc., etc. But work performed for a festival of eat may be delivery scheduled for cholamoyed, Provide has to do with the preparation of food, etc., etc. Other source, while allowing a you shouldn't schedule for it, etc., etc. A final rule regarding festival needs concerns situations in which one can obtain the food from a merchant or borrow it from a friend. One is not required to do so for preparing the food oneself is deemed a festival need. Okay, fine. But that was the rule. If you don't need it, you can't use it. Dover sha'avid b'moed. Something will be lost if you don't take care of it on the moid. You're allowed to do the work on the moid, even if it's not a festival need. But something you're not going to lose on cholamoid. You're not allowed to do that. Okay, he's listing rules. We still haven't come to the question yet, but he's listing a bunch of rules. Let's continue. But, when did we say these words? Let's say, when things are detached from the ground, minakarka, but if they're attached to the ground, even if it'll all be lost, you can't do that. Why? Because the harvest of a standing crop and its subsequent processing is a very public proceeding. We fear that onlookers unaware of the impending loss of the crop, will erroneously assume it's permissible to harvest crops on Chol HaMoed. So now, that's a very tough halacha, so to speak, because it wasn't the guy's fault. What do you want? But too bad. Public display, people aren't going to know the nature of that. However, the main if the guy's got nothing to eat at all, then he can reap, gather, thresh, winnow, select, and grind his standing crop on cholamoid. Um, now the words, if one does not have anything to eat, should not be taken to mean that one has no option but to perform these labors. Rather, even if one is able to purchase food or borrow it from another, he's not required to do so. He can prepare his own. Okay, good. But anyway... So you could do a number of activities. You can look what we're allowed to do. You can reap, gather, thresh, winnow, select, and grind. What can you not do? Ubovachlo yidosh paperis. Provided however he does not thresh the paros using oxen. 
It's already seen from the price that unless one has nothing to eat, one may not perform work with a standing crop on Cholaboyd, even to save a certain loss. So how was Rav Huna permitted to reap the crops? Amarleh, he said, you know what? That brisa that you just quoted, Yechidahi, it's an individual tana. It's not the accepted normative halacha. And we do not hold like that ruling when it's at odds with a Mishnah in a tractate. As we'll see, and we've got to stop it here, Titania, he'll bring a brisa that will prove that it's a singular opinion. Okay, we got to stop and get ready for the second minion. So we'll end it there. Okay, shkayach, everybody.